You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, April 11, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. All right, good morning. It's good to see you guys. My name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege this morning of leading us as we read from and teach from God's Word. So make your way to 2 Timothy chapter 1, where we pick up this morning. And as you're doing that, I will, I will share with you a bit of a, a memory that came to my mind this week as I was preparing. Um, it was around the late 90s. I, c- I couldn't remember exactly what year it was, but I think it was around 98. I had decided to go and visit a seminary in Vancouver, Canada. Um, partly because it was in Vancouver, Canada, uh, and then also equally as important, uh, J.I. Packer was still the head of the theology department there. So uh, his works had had a profound impact on me in those years as a new believer, and so I thought, let's go do it. I get two weeks to backpack in Vancouver and throughout British Columbia, and then I go visit a seminary. Um, And so I did that. I took off, and I backpacked through British Columbia for 12 days, and then I spent two days at the seminary and went through an interview process there, and it happened to correspond with Holy Week. And so I spent the night with a young couple uh, in their apartment there at the seminary, and then I attended with them the seminary's Good Friday service, where the, the minister who led the service basically taught through the stations of the cross. And as beautiful as the location was, a beautiful mid-century modern chapel they built there in Vancouver, all this glass, this beautiful seating, Um, as great as the teaching was, I don't really remember a lot of what was said, Um, I was captivated for the entire time by this elderly man who sat kind of in front of me to the left. His body was very frail. Uh, He never once was able to sit upright. And as the evening went on and the stations of the cross continued, he increasingly wept with an uncontrolled passion. And there was a group of people that were right around him, a small group, that kind of came closer to him, put their hands on him, cried along with him. And I remember sitting there thinking, whatever impact this message is having on him and on them, I'm missing something somewhere. Um... It was the next day that I learned that this particular man had been an underground pastor in the Chinese church and had been imprisoned for over two and a half decades and had undergone some of those brutal torture you would ever hear about, which is why he never even could sit upright. And as he heard about the sacrifice of Jesus again for sinners like himself, he was just overwhelmed in the moment. And those who were around him and were with him some had been family, some had been members of one of the churches that he had pastored there in China in the underground church, and they were the ones who found the ways and legally to get him out of the imprisonment that he was in and help him and themselves find asylum there in British Columbia. And as I learned the story and pictured the man and listened again in my mind that next day to the message, my, my own personal arrogance and self-centeredness was overwhelming. It was as overwhelming to me as the message of grace was to him. And then it would be a few years down the road. uh, I would not go to Vancouver. I would make my way in God's providence to Virginia, and I'd end up getting married. And 
Shortly after my wife and I got married, we went to a conference uh, in Annapolis, Maryland, and it was there in a breakout session of a conference uh, that a professor named Scott Haifman, who today is a scholar at Wheaton College and Wheaton Seminary, uh, was teaching one of the breakout sessions that we went to, and fantastic hour and a half together. But it was part of the message, part of the session, where he had told us, and it was a little off script, but it was impressive, um, he had just gotten back about three weeks earlier from training a group of young pastors in Chad, the country of Chad in Africa. At the time, again, this is the late 90s, early aughts, I guess. Uh, Chad, it may still be, I should have looked it up, was the poorest country in the world. Um, the second most opulent mosque was being built in the middle of the capital city. It's the way that that was operating. Um, and he was there to train these young pastors in the Bible and in the gospel and for the work they were doing. And what was so astounding about the story was that these young pastors, about two and a half years before Dr. Hafen's time with them, they had been standing outside of the little village chapels that they had been in, and they had been standing by the side of the pastor in their area who had been forced to dig a hole in the ground and at gunpoint was asked to renounce the name of Jesus. And for refusing to do so, they were shot in the head, falling into the grave they had just dug, and those young men were the ones that covered the grave and then began to take the pulpits of those men that had been shot, knowing that they were digging their own grave in doing so and continuing to identify with Jesus and the church. Half, he said, of those young men were actually sons of those pastors as they watched their father die for the name of Jesus. And again, sitting there, I was undone. But this time, it wasn't just my, my arrogance and my self-centeredness. I was confronted with a question in my own heart. and was, do I really hold tight to anything that I truly believe is worth that? Is there anything in my heart that I think is worth that? It was those, those in Vancouver and those young men in Chad, they were unashamed of Jesus and unashamed of his people, and they were willing to live that way. As I read the text this week, it, they came to my mind because they were the most contemporary examples I could think of of the saints that Paul lists, like Onesiphorus, who under his own danger made the trip from Asia, which would have been Ephesus, which would have been Turkey, to Rome to try to find Paul because Paul was not easily found at this point. He was imprisoned in the Mamertine prison, but it wasn't public knowledge. So this Turkish man who was now a follower of Jesus made the trip to Rome. And when he got to Rome, he wouldn't know where Paul was, but he would try to find other believers. That wasn't an easy thing to do because the persecution of Nero was in full swing. It wasn't safe. But he would go from place to place and house to house asking questions about Paul. Unsafe questions, dangerous questions. But questions nonetheless, and Paul will tell Timothy in this letter that Onesiphorus never quit, and he found him, and he came to him at his own peril, and when he came to him, he refreshed him often. His soul was revived by the company of this man. I mean, what a joy to Paul's heart it must have been to have him there. 
because as many in that day had a completely different reaction. I mean, you heard in verse 15 that Paul reminded Timothy that all who were in Asia had turned away from him, among whom were Phygelus and Hermogenes. We don't know exactly who those two were, but to be mentioned by name mentioned meant that people were aware of them. And if you just think about it in the context of the story, as Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, it was only probably anywhere between five and seven years earlier before this letter that Paul was actually in, maybe, maybe, maybe closer to eight or nine years earlier that Paul was actually in Ephesus where he was teaching and serving and living with and loving the people of this place. So much so that Luke records in Acts that all of Asia heard the gospel and many believed. But on the heels of that great awakening, less than a decade later, there was a great defection from Paul and from the gospel. And so Paul, in pinning this letter to Timothy, is being very deliberate in his words to him and through him, his words to the church, reminding him, as we saw last week, to not be ashamed of Jesus, to not be ashamed of him, There's really two paths before them, one of faithfulness and one of disloyalty. But as we saw last week, Paul reminded Timothy, as you anchor your heart daily in the gospel, the gospel, the power of God to save sinners by grace, as you anchor your heart daily in the good news of God's power, your affections are warmed anew as you taste again his love for you, his mercy towards you, his goodness, and as your affections are warmed towards him, you'll be all the more certain of his promise to keep you because you'll know more deeply whom you have believed. See, Paul there in Rome, Onesiphorus having left Turkey, going to Paul right there, That pastor I saw that night in Vancouver and those that were with him, those pastors that Dr. Haifman told us about from Chad, they weren't willing to suffer such a fate for a collection of truths, for lists of information. They were willing to endure what they were suffering because of the truth about Jesus. Because they have known the one in whom they believed because he was life or death. It was no game to play. It was life and it was death. And because they know, not just in their minds, but having feasted upon his word and him revealing himself to them and their affections being on fire by what God has revealed to them about who he is because of whom they know. They could say with Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. He, in the word of his grace, is the source of your courage to live a life unashamed of him. This is what Paul has been telling Timothy. But he reminded him that when you live unashamed for Jesus, there's going to be a price to pay. It's never been popular to live for Jesus. And when the price to pay is put in front of you, you'll suffer 
And when the price to pay is put in front of you, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted to find a way out. You're going to be tempted to trim. Or or as one writer said, mute the notes of the gospel that are jarring to sensitive and modern ears any way to avoid the cost of following Jesus. Don't be ashamed. Timothy, church, you're going to need the courage that comes from the gospel to live unashamed for the gospel, but you're going to need that same courage to unashamedly guard the gospel. And to guard it in love, we must. Listen to what Paul says in the context of how he wrote it. Just just listen. Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This was given in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Therefore, In light of that, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Phygelus and Hermogenes haven't done that. Onesiphorus has. Timothy, church, I want you to as well. So it's going to be of utmost importance for us, as it was for Timothy in that day, to understand exactly what it is that Paul is imploring we do. Listen to what he says, verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. It's clear. It's direct. It's not unnecessarily complicated. But to really make this thing sing, it helps to understand the words that Paul chose to use. When you read verse 13 and you hear Paul say, follow the pattern, pattern in the way this word was used in the contemporary culture of Paul's day, even in different places in the New Testament and the Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament, it's used as a form of a standard, a standard that is put in place. A standard that defines how things happen. When you're given a standard for a job or a standard for a building or a standard for a picture, it's a standard that guides the direction. You're not free to alter standards. Follow the standard of the sound words. It really begins to sing when you understand that that sound Paul's talking about here can be equally translated healthy. Follow the standard of the healthy words that you have heard from me. Keep to the standard of healthy, life-giving, nourishing words that you've heard from me. This is the essence of what you read yesterday in CBR in Psalm 119. God has called us to keep diligently his words, his standards, his precepts. 
Paul is saying keep, hold fast to the standard of healthy, nourishing, life-giving words. Friends, let me ask you this. If you knew that there was one food that you could eat that would provide you with all of the nourishment necessary to live a healthy, vital, flourishing life, would you eat it? Would you eat it? You would, wouldn't you? You wouldn't turn your nose up to it. You'd eat it. Paul is reminding Timothy and reminding the church through him that the gospel is the God-provided nourishment for sin-sick people. It is the healthy standard pattern of words for the nourishment of our souls. Follow, hold fast to this pattern. Follow, feast on these words. They are the source of life, of health, of nourishment and joy. But here's the thing. It's going to take courage to do this. Because there's always going to be a pressure to deviate from these words. A pressure to deviate from these truths. It's why, as Paul says, as you feast on these words, not only do it supply you with the courage necessary to live unashamed, they also shape the attitude in which you live. The attitude with which you follow. Listen to what he says. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See, what Paul is talking about right there is the attitude that you and I have as we follow, as we hold tight to the pattern of sound, healthy words, as through repentance and faith we live out of these nourishing, life-giving words. Grammatically, Paul putting these two things together the way he did in writing this particular sentence, he's coupling these things together to show that one has only slightly greater importance than the other. Coupling them like this, in a way, Paul is emphasizing that the manner and the attitude we have as we follow these words is is only slightly less important than feasting on them together. And so listen to his logic as you feast on the gospel yourself, are increasingly daily nourished by the truth of God's goodness and power and grace and faithfulness, your affection for him grows. And as your affection for him grows, the one in whom you have believed, you begin to increasingly reflect him in the way you follow his sound words. You increasingly reflect him in how you live with and treat others. In the context of this letter, in particular others who may challenge the nature of these sound words. In faith and love, it means a growing humility born out of being before the cross daily. A growing humility being born out of being with Jesus daily. 
It's an increased joy and delight in Jesus. It's an increased eagerness to want to be with him because our souls are being set aflame by him in faith and with love. God isn't leaving us with a choice between being a person of truth or a person of faith and love. Now listen to Paul. As we follow, as we hold fast to, as we feast upon the sound, healthy words that God has given and we commend them to others, we do it in faith and with love. See, here's the thing about the world in which we live. I think it's accurate. You can correct me. But by and large, the, the world around us isn't waiting for you to give them the perfectly tight, logically ordered words an argument that's somehow going to now change their mind about everything with which they've believed. They're not waiting for your right words or your right thinking. They're also not waiting to just see the church outdo them in particular acts of love, so to speak. I mean, if we're really honest, the world around us in many ways outloves the church practically. And that's not going to do it. What the world is looking for is a life that has been changed by and is affectionately devoted to Jesus. A life that is feasting and being changed by these sound words of health. And a life, therefore, that's lived in faith and love. And the question that we have to wrestle with is, even as individuals sitting here, are you feasting on God's word? Are you feasting on his word where he reveals himself to us, where he reveals his love for us? Are we feasting on his sound words? Better yet, if you're, you're willing to do an honest assessment, you could ask yourself at some point this week what your diet does consist of. What pattern of words do you feast on? Where does your intake of the gospel, where does your intake of the pattern of sound words that God has given us for life and joy rank with the words you take in on Facebook? Your favorite news channel, your favorite radio channel in the car, Instagram, and everything else. If you're honest to do that kind of assessment and you see that your soul is taking in and feasting on all manner and pattern of words as opposed to the sound, nutritious, life-giving words that God is giving us, is there any surprise that you see coming out of you and those around you what you see? If this really is the God-given source of life and joy and nourishment. It's only right then that it be guarded. And this is where Paul goes with Timothy. He says, Timothy, guard. It's a military word, guard. The good deposit entrusted to you. Again, it's simple, it's clear. 
It's not overly complex, but when we look at the words that Paul chooses to use, they begin to come alive. Guard the good. This word good is translated throughout the New Testament as beautiful. Guard the beautiful deposit, treasure, that thing which is so precious to you that when you were to go out of town in those days, you didn't have banks to leave things in, lock boxes to put things in. You would have a trusted friend that you would give things to who became the steward of those things for you that they guarded and protected until you returned because it was so important to you. Timothy guard the beautiful deposit, the beautiful treasure entrusted to you. This gospel is a life-giving and beautiful treasure. It's so precious that it's worth guarding. And it's got to be guarded because it can be lost or damaged. If it couldn't be lost and it couldn't be damaged, then you wouldn't have to guard it. Remember, Timothy, the truth matters. The truth is important because it's the truth of the gospel that sets people free. Anything less than that or other than that keeps people in bondage. So guard this beautiful treasure. And it's important to at least consider for a moment how it's actually threatened. How is this beautiful treasure threatened? Well, it can be threatened by addition, by trying to add to it. This was the problem you can read about even back in Acts when Paul took Timothy with him back to Jerusalem and they met with the apostles and the letter was written that they would then circulate throughout the region to all the churches declaring that those who were Gentiles who came to faith in Christ through repentance and faith in Jesus did not have to then be circumcised and follow all the Jewish commandments in order to be followers of Jesus. See, the the threat of circumcision was the threat to redefine what faithfulness looked like. You don't have to add. It's repentance and faith in Jesus. Add anything to that and you begin to damage the good news. It can be threatened by subtraction. This happened in the early church. John dealt with it in 1 John. It happened in the history of the church. continues to happen to now. Sometimes people will look at it and say, I believe in God. I believe he created the earth. I believe in Jesus. But I believe Jesus was fully God but not human. He really wasn't a man. That's what John dealt with in his letter in 1 John. Later on in church history, the argument would flip on its head the other way. Well, I believe that Jesus was man, but he wasn't really God. No. You can damage and lose the good news, the beautiful treasure of sound, healthy words by taking away from it. But you can also damage this beautiful treasure by polluting it. This is where all of the contemporary isms kind of come into place. They're like pollutants. You know, one, if you, if you read all the magazines and you're, you're up on all the latest Christian jargon, you, you've probably heard the term moral therapeutic deism. It, it's this overarching idea that people tend to have that, yes, God exists, But what God wants is for everyone to be good and nice. And the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. And that God, though he created the world and though he exists, he isn't particularly involved in it until a problem occurs. That's the overwhelming mindset that so many have today. It's a pollutant. So is postmodernism. 
postmodernism has given way to so many other theories that have arisen in the world that we live in today. I like to think of it in terms of what I call the contemporary cultural constitution. We live under a cultural constitution. And the foundation of that constitution is the idea that truth is personal. It belongs to me. You have yours, I have mine. And my truth belongs to me or my tribe or my group, however I draw that line. And because the foundation of this constitution is that truth is personal, the conviction of it is that all truth is unequal. Yours is yours, mine is mine. You can't say one is better than the other. And if we can't do that, the conclusion then is that all truth is relative. And the consequence for violating this contemporary cultural constitution is that if you think your truth is the truth that is to be universally applied to all people everywhere, then you're put in cultural prison for violating the contemporary cultural constitution. This constitution that has been put in place to the birth of the philosophy that if you go back and argue it that way of postmodernism has opened the door to every manner of theory that comes in and begins to pollute the nature of the gospel. Because each of these pollutants offers an alternative story of the world. How it came to be, what went wrong, why things are the way they are, how the wrong gets made right, what my role in that is. And all of those isms and pollutants offer competing hopes. I love the way Craig Bartholomew, he's a biblical theologian in England, he said that Christians believe that there is one story the true story told in God's word. It begins with God's creation and human rebellion and runs through the history of Israel to Jesus and on through the church, moving to the final coming of the kingdom of God. At the very center of this story is the man Jesus of Nazareth, in whom God has fully revealed and accomplished his purpose for the world. The story, this story alone gives true meaning to all of human history and to every culture, and thus meaning to your life and mine. This story provides us with an understanding of the whole world and of our place within it. It's a big story that encompasses and explains all the smaller stories of our lives. See, all of these pollutants, these isms, these competing, these competing narratives, they offer a different hope. And we know it if you think about it. They all can't be equally true. And so there is a pressure to give in to this pluralistic, contemporary, cultural constitution that would call us to treat God's word, God's good deposit, as something other than it claims to be, the true story of the world. To give in to that would be to change the entire nature of the Christian faith. You see, the meaning of our whole world's history has been most fully shown in the person of Jesus. And you and I either embrace Jesus and believe that story as true or we reject Jesus and treat that story as false. But what we do not have permission to do, what we cannot do, is reshape the Bible to suit our own religious preference. That is the pattern or the standard of sound, healthy words for our joy and God's glory. It is the beautiful treasure that he has given us. The Bible's very claim to tell the one true story of the world is central to its very nature. All these competing narratives, they, they poison the, the spring of the gospel upstream. If you think about it like warfare, 
Way back in the day, when, before a lot of modern weaponry and technology, the way in which you would soften an enemy before attack is to find a way to poison their water stream upstream. You'd put something rotten and decaying in the stream, and it would flow downwards. When they ingested it, they would get sick. It didn't happen immediately. It took time. But all of these competing narratives, they poison the stream of the gospel, and they wreak havoc on the hearts and lives of people downstream. This is the way it happens. And our city is littered with churches that have lost their grip on the gospel. One generation believed it and held tight to it. A second generation just assumed it. And the following generations have let go of it completely. And so Paul tells Timothy and indirectly speaks to us, don't let this happen to you. You've got to guard it. You've got to prioritize it. You've got to prize it. You have to cling to it. You have to insist on it. Not so that you can be right for the sake of being right, but for the health and life of God's people and for the glory of Jesus and the joy of God's people. You've got to guard it. But as we talk about it, we've got to be honest. The responsibility to guard the gospel, it can be turned into a defensiveness that can become mean-spirited and demeaning. I know that. I'm aware of that. Paul knows that, which is why he coupled with that original injunction to continue to feast on the gospel because it is that which produces the attitude of faith and love that shapes the way that we interact with one another. I do, humanly, I do worry about the danger to become overly focused on constantly correcting with a wrong attitude. Doing that is unhelpful and unattractive. But the opposite isn't any better, and it's equally unhelpful and unattractive. The opposite is the posture that's unwilling to ever say that something or someone is wrong. You simply can't read the Bible, and you will not make it through this letter without coming to terms with how wrong you are and how often. In fact, in faith and with love, Paul is actually going to name people that God is going to preserve in the Bible for all of eternity. How would you like that? That's what's going to happen. But following and feasting and guarding is is at times going to require the conviction to say that an idea or a theory and even a person is wrong. But we do it in faith and with love. Because the danger is to either lose, diminish, redefine, or dilute the gospel. But here's the thing, the impulse today is to not do that. The larger impulse today is to not tackle these things graciously, but to back away. Which is why I found D.A. Carson so helpful on this. I think he hit the nail on the head. He wrote this, that part of the problem today is that we've been fed with a certain view of what the Bible says about the value of Christian unity. He said it's worth thinking about the constant tension in the scripture between the ideal of unity and the ideal of maintaining the truth. Because you do find both in scripture. 
He argues that in Western churches, you find heritages in the church that emphasize one or the other. Some so far stress the preserving of the gospel, you're not sure what they think about unity. Others so stress the priority of unity that unity becomes an absolute good. Unity becomes a supreme good. And therefore, in those places, you have all the manner of diversity and doctrine because after all, that's not as important as unity. And so if I can summarize very quickly, the argument that Carson makes that I find very helpful in understanding what Paul is saying here is simply this. In the Bible, unity is not an absolute good. In some contexts, it is good. In John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he talks about the relationship and the unity that not only does he have with the Father, but we have with them in him. In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about the hostility that has been removed by and through Jesus between people and the unity that we now have across competing demographics in Jesus because of God's grace. That's good. But in other places in the Bible, unity is seen as evil. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, the whole world unified to build something over and against God. King Jehoshaphat, covenant-keeping king of Israel, builds an evil alliance with King Ahab to the north. That unity that he builds with Ahab causes Jehoshaphat to lose his life, and Israel is left kingless and defenseless. Bad unity. The same goes for division. There is godly division and ungodly division. Luke 12, Jesus was very clear. He came to bring a sword. The message of his kingdom would be divisive for some. Paul, in letters that he writes to the church, warns about an ungodly division, though. Romans 16, watch out for those who cause division. Titus 3, very similar letter to Timothy. He'll tell Titus in Crete to warn a divisive person once, then twice, then have nothing to do with them. There is an ungodly division. What Carson argues is that unity in the abstract, in the Bible, is never an absolute good. It's only unity in the truth. The truth, as God has revealed it, in the standard of sound words, the beautiful treasure that he has given us for life, for nourishment, for joy in his glory, unity around submission to God and his word, supremely in his son. That is the unity that matters. So pursuing unity for the sake of unity can be dangerous. But pursuing unity based on what God has won for us through Jesus, is worth it. And that kind of pursuit is going to require from all of God's people an increased clarity around what matters. You see, there's so much pressure to not make a big deal out of what some may consider potentially divisive issues. And on one hand, no one wants to be intentionally divisive. That's bad. On the other hand, we can't fall into the other error of being dismissive about that which matters because all of God's word matters. And ideas can damage, can alter, can infect the healthy stream of the gospel. This is where something that's called theological triage comes into play. You know what triage is? You go into an ER 
Those in the ER have to decide the priority that different cases are handled in. So if you come in having had a car wreck and your leg is all mangled up, but someone comes in right behind you with two gunshots to the chest, they might roll that person in in front of you because they've got to get that person stabilized to be able to help them as they care for you. There's a triage of importance. We gave the elders a book not long ago. It's written by a guy named Gavin Ortland. It's Ray Ortland's son. You get his book when you're a guest here. It's called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. It is a gospel-based book on theological triage. And to sum it up for you, he, he basically says this. There are three orders, basically, ranks of doctrines. There's the first rank doctrines that are essential to the gospel. You can't deny these teachings and still call yourself a Christian. They're so tied to the essentials of the faith that if you lose them, you lose everything. Things like there is one God in three persons. Jesus is fully God and fully human. Jesus sacrificially died for sinners. Jesus rose bodily from the dead. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus is coming back. Lose these things, you lose everything. On first rank issues, we need conviction and we need courage. But there are second rank issues. Those are doctrines that are urgent for the church, but they're not essential to the gospel. What that means is that Christians can disagree on these things, but the disagreement is going to cause significant boundaries. These are often the doctrines that shape denominations, that shape organizations and networks. They're still important and they're still urgent. They include things like baptism and church government and spiritual gifts. But you don't have to hold to a particular view on these things to be a Christian. But it might be challenging for you to live amongst a local church that shares a different conviction about those things. They do shape. They put edges and contours around things. For those things, we need wisdom and balance. But for the third rank issues, these are important to Christian theology, but they're not essential to the gospel or necessarily urgent for the church. These are things like different views on the end times. With these things, we need forbearance, patience, humility, and a resilience, a refusal to fight over these things, even though they are important. And here's the thing. Some of us are just a little too hair-triggered, and we risk wanting to make everything a first-order issue. And we fail in faith and with love to show charity to those who disagree. Others fall into the other error. Martin Luther used to talk about this error to his church like a drunken man trying to get on a horse. Just as you get propped up on one side, you fall off on the other. There's no stability. There's no conviction. It's a a casual, he would say, take it or leave it attitude about doctrine or theology And that's incompatible with how we receive God's word. Avoiding controversy, you just end up in an equal danger. Paul was very concerned about this. Friends, this is Paul's last letter. These are his last words. And with them, he implores Timothy and the church to hold fast to, to follow to feast on the pattern of sound and healthy words that God has given and to guard them. And as you prepare to respond to God's word, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear Paul. When you hear him call us to guarding this good word, this deposit, this guarding is not just a defensive act. I mean, sometimes the, the best defense is a good offense. 
which is why Paul says to feast on the healthy, beautiful treasure of the gospel. That we might follow, hold tight to it, live with conviction, in love and faith. That as we enjoy God and enjoy Jesus and enjoy his grace, the more we feast on this good deposit and are nourished by this good deposit, the more readily we'll be to guard this good deposit. Which means your feasting daily on God in his word and on Jesus is part of your guarding. You're holding tight to, you're following, you're surrendering and responding to these good words with repentance and faith is part of your guarding. You're adoring and your affections being inflamed as you feast on the nutritious word of God is part of your guarding because it begins to shape how you then live and follow. It cultivates a passion for the truth Truth that's worth guarding because Jesus is at stake. And guarding in love because eternity is at stake. Timothy is charged with leading a local church full of people who come from all manner of backgrounds and experiences and he's supposed to lead them into a Jesus-reflecting people. And in order for that to happen, the gospel has to be guarded. The same thing has to be true today which is why we should be as comforted and encouraged as I hope and I believe Timothy was when he read what Paul wrote when he said, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit. John Stott said, we may see the faith of the gospel everywhere spoken against and the message of the New Testament ridiculed. We may have to watch an increasing falling away in the church, but don't be afraid. God will never allow the light of the gospel to be extinguished. True, he's committed it to us, frail and fallible creatures. He's placed this treasure in brittle earthen vessels, but we play our part in guarding and defending this truth. Nevertheless, entrusting that deposit to our hands, he is not taking his own hands off of it. So church, hold on. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching. Hold on to the truth against all the pressures to let it go. Because it matters. Paul was willing to be imprisoned and willing to die for this truth. Onesiphorus was willing to suffer the same consequence. And that man that I saw that night in Vancouver, it was worth it. For those pastors in Chad, it was worth it. Why? Because they know in whom they have believed. And Jesus was worth it. Let me close our time by reading to you the prayer that Gavin Ortland closes this book with. And let this be our prayer for us as we respond to God's word this morning. He said, Lord, where we have sinned, either by failing to love the truth or by failing to love our brothers and sisters in our disagreements about the truth, forgive us and help us. For those of us who tend to fight too much, help us to remember that you also died for the unity of the church, your bride. Give us softer hearts. For those of us who tend to fight too little over matters, help us to feel our need for courage and resilience. Give us stronger backbones. Help us to be people who tremble at your word and therefore ultimately fear no one but you. 
lead us toward that healthy, happy balance of adhering to all of your teaching while embracing all of your people. We pray that in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.